Hi, I'm Dan Jones. And I'm Mia Lee, and we are the editors of Modern Love at The New York Times and co-hosts of the Modern Love podcast. We read love stories for a living. And by love stories, we mean essays written by real people about all forms of human connection. We're talking about everything from first dates to funerals, from sibling rivalries to new love at 85. On our show, we're going to bring those stories to life. We'll hear from the writers and also from the people who are written about. Relationships are the most important things in our lives. And the people that tell us their stories are just so brave, like way braver than I think I am most of the time. Yeah. They're so honest and so vulnerable. And listening to the stories, I feel like you absorb so much wisdom and you get a sense that you're not alone. You can follow Modern Love wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. We hope you'll join us. New episodes are out every Wednesday. From the New York Times, I'm Michael Barbaro. This is The Daily. Today. As a teenager, Nora Jackson was convicted of murder and spent 11 years in prison. But from the start, prosecutors possessed a single document that could have set her free. Why the omission of evidence, despite its life-altering consequences, is hard to detect and almost never punished. It's Monday, August 7th. Three years ago, in a woman's prison outside Memphis, Tennessee, Nora Jackson was sitting in her cell watching television on mute. You know, they have 3-1, 3-2, and 3-3, and 3-2 is just like a repeat of the news and the weather. Her roommate was in the cafeteria, and Nora wanted to get some privacy. And I just was sitting there going to the bathroom and just like watching it, and I saw my name come across the bottom of the screen. And then I was like, oh shit. So she turns on the volume. The Tennessee Supreme Court has granted Nora Jackson a new trial. And she just honestly, for a few minutes, couldn't believe it. Nora Jackson is now awaiting a new trial. And even though there's no... Nora had just won her appeal, something that rarely happens in the state of Tennessee. This is after she has spent nine years in prison. Emily Bazelon has been covering the case. And, like, nobody was there because everybody was at dinner. So I'm, like, screaming to get out because I'm, like, wanting to get to the phone and nobody's there. It must have been something good to eat that night. And why was Nora in prison in the first place? Nora was in prison because she was convicted of murdering her mother, Jennifer Jackson. Wow. On the night of September 4th, 2005, Nora Jackson was out all night. She was at a couple of parties with some friends, then she later said that she was driving around. And that same night, in the very early morning hours, her mother was brutally stabbed to death in their home. Fire department, what's the address of the emergency? 5001 New Haven Avenue. What's the problem to exactly what happened? Nobody's looking at my house. My mom is bleeding. Is she breathing? No, she's not breathing. She's not breathing. She's not breathing. She was stabbed to death 50 times. As the yellow tape goes up on Jennifer Jackson's front lawn, theories of her murder start blooming like Tennessee passion flowers. There were TV reports about it calling it an unsolved, mysterious stabbing. 
Police calling Jackson's murder a home invasion robbery homicide. Maybe it's a robbery gone wrong. The house of the so Emily, then what happened? Well, then Amy Wyrick got the file. Anyone who thought Shelby County's first female DA would be a pushover, well, they don't know Amy Wyrick. And Amy Wyrick was a rising star in the Memphis courthouse. She was known as a formidable trial lawyer. As a prosecutor for over 20 years, I have worked hard every day to make sure those who break the law are held accountable. I'm Amy Wyrick. I'm a prosecutor, but I'm also a mother. And I'll go after anyone who threatens our community. And Nora's case went to her. Amy Wyrick developed a theory. She thought that Nora had killed her mother for money because she, Nora, wanted to keep a kind of partying lifestyle going. Nora, at this point, was 18. She'd been having some trouble in school. And Wyrick thought that Nora's mother was setting down rules that Nora didn't like and that they were clashing over money. That's a pretty significant theory to have developed. Did the prosecutor have any evidence to suggest that? There are a couple of hours in the middle of the night when Nora was unaccounted for. She wasn't calling anyone or texting anyone. And she had a cut on her hand. Nora's family members and friends of hers said that she had given differing explanations for this cut. And so all of that loomed very large at trial. She took those knives with premeditation thinking of one thing. She wasn't going to cut bologna with those knives. She was going to cut the thing that was standing in the way of her lifestyle of freedom. Another key piece of the puzzle from the point of view of the prosecution was a witness named Andrew Hammack. Throughout the night and the last thing, I do remember when I woke up, I had a text message or a voicemail that said answer. And he testified at trial that she called him somewhere between 4 and 5 in the morning and asked him to meet her at her house. And so he became a critical witness because he was the only person who placed Nora at the scene of the murder. Just tell us where you were. That's all we're asking, Nora. The jury deliberated for nine hours, and they came back into the courtroom, and Nora says she remembered that she tried to make eye contact with some of the jurors, and none of them would look at her. And then she heard the verdict. Stand, please, Ms. Jackson. Jackson, upon a jury of your peers having found you guilty of murder in the second degree, suggesting the court you found guilty of that offense, sentenced to 20 years and nine months in the Tennessee Department of Correction as a 100% violent offender without parole, and nothing will ever bring Jennifer back to us. No amount of time will enable us to comprehend the brutal massacre of our beloved Jennifer by the daughter she loved most in the world. The horror of it all is only... So why did Nora appeal this verdict? Andrew Hammack, this key witness, had written a note to the police that the prosecutors should have turned over to the defense and did not. And one of the things it said was that Andrew Hammack was rolling on ecstasy the night of the murder. And then the other thing he said was that he had left his phone with his friend Ian. And the reason that that was important was that his testimony, obviously, was about this idea that Nora had called him and that he had actually spoken to Nora. Mm -hmm. And so if Andrew Hammack didn't actually have his phone at this key part of the night, then it seems like... He couldn't have talked to Nora. And legally, Emily, why is the existence of this note and how it was treated so 
important? Everyone who's accused of a crime before a trial has the right to all the evidence the state has collected that is favorable to them and material to their guilt or innocence. And when you step back and think about this for a minute, the reason is that the state, the prosecution has on its side the police and Mm -hmm. the crime labs, all the kind of investigative muscle of the government. And so because of all of that power that that gives the state, we have this rule. It comes from a 1963 Supreme Court case called Brady versus Maryland. John Leo Brady was on death row in Maryland in 1963. And when his lawyers appealed, they found out that a co-defendant had confessed to the killing that he was on death row for. And the prosecutors knew that at his trial, and they never told the jury, and they never told the defense. The Supreme Court thought, you know what, this is a really important piece of information that should have been disclosed to the defense beforehand so the defense could have brought it up and used it at the trial. And so what we're really talking about here fundamentally is kind of balancing the scales or trying to even the scales between the prosecution and the defense. So 1963 makes this a pretty recent development in American criminal justice. Did the prosecution not have to hand over evidence that's material and favorable before that time? Right. The prosecution did not have an obligation in the United States to hand over any evidence at all, at least not a constitutional obligation. And the idea was that there was going to be an element of surprise. You didn't even find out what you were charged with until the trial. And the surprise was to help ascertain the truth. That was the idea, that people would answer in the moment and the jury or the judge would be able to tell whether they were telling the truth. Trial by ambush. Right. And this is the sort of cinematic version of criminal justice where the lawyer tells the person on the stand, you know, how do you explain this? And it feels like actually that's been illegal for quite some time. That's right. We're talking about something that the defense should have had, that they should have been able to prepare for and react to, and that the jury and the judge also should have found out about. Okay, so back to Nora Jackson. What is the explanation for why this note was not shared with the defense. The assistant prosecutor at the trial, who's named Stephen Jones, said that he got the note in the middle of the trial. He read it, and then he put it in a flap of his trial notebook, intending to turn it over to the defense, but then he forgot about it. So he says this was an innocent mistake. God, so basically, like, lost it within his own filing system. Exactly. And then came upon it after the trial was over. And at that point, several days after the guilty verdict, he filed a motion Mm. calling attention to it as omitted evidence and turning it over to the judge. WMC Action News 5 at 10 starts now. But the trial judge did not grant Nora a new trial based on this new piece of evidence. And so the case traveled all the way up on appeal to the Tennessee Supreme Court. Now, the Shelby County District Attorney General Amy Wyrick in the hot seat after courtroom mistakes, according to some, help a convicted mother killer get a new trial. It's been a busy night of breaking news in the Mid-South. Good evening. I'm Joe Burr. The Tennessee Supreme Court has ordered a new trial for Nora Jackson. Jackson's attorney, Valerie Corder, says her client should have never been convicted. 
Corder says investigators linked Jackson to the murder with little physical evidence. There was circumstantial evidence against Nora, but the DNA analysis in this case points away from Nora. It excluded her as being one of the people whose blood was found at the scene of the crime and pointed to other unknown suspects. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a big part of this case. And so the Tennessee Supreme Court, looking at that, thought, well, given the lack of physical evidence and these DNA results, that makes the testimony of this single witness, Andrew Hammack, who puts Nora at the scene of the crime, really important. Did you talk to the lead prosecutor, Amy Wyrick, about the possibility that this could have been a turning point in the case, this failure to disclose that letter? I just turned on my tape recorder. Yes, I did talk to her about that in an interview, and she really dismisses that possibility. I found out about the missing statement sometime after Steve Jones discovered it. Right, but like when? I don't know. I I have no idea. And then when he realized he had forgotten, he told me that, and Steve did what every prosecutor in the country would do. He reported it to the judge, and he put it in the hands of the judge to handle. So you don't remember that moment when he told you about that? And I guess the reason I'm asking is that, you know, potentially, and in fact this happened, like, that note turned into a Brady violation that um, led to a reversal of the conviction. So I just imagine that it might be kind of memorable. Well, you might imagine that it would be, but it's not. Because I think that illustrates how... um, how uncertain the world of Brady has become. This was a trial that took two weeks. This was a trial with 40-something witnesses. This was a trial with 400 pieces of evidence. Um, And yes, it happened. And yes, the case was reversed because of it. Um, Lessons learned. Um, So you were talking earlier, I think you said that the... I've got to wrap up. I've got a two-time meeting. Let me just ask you two more questions. We'll be right back. This fall, history is happening. September 14th, 2021. Hamilton, the Tony, Grammy, Olivier, and Pulitzer Prize-winning musical, returns to Broadway. Tickets are on sale now. Performances begin September 14th. Hamilton, back on Broadway at the Richard Rogers Theater. Learn more at hamiltonmusical.com. So, Emily, you've been studying this one case, but how often do you think this happens where an omission of evidence by accident or deliberately sways the outcome of a case? You know, it's really hard to answer the question of how often prosecutors fail to disclose evidence because we're talking about something that's hidden. It's hard to know whether we can be sure that it ever comes to light. But there are some telling studies. One of them was conducted in 2002 by a couple of Columbia Law School professors, and they reviewed 2,700 death sentences across the country. And what these law professors were saying was that their analysis showed that it was in close cases, those in which a small amount of evidence might tip the outcome in a different direction, that the risk of serious error is the greatest. And that's a pretty chilling possibility, the idea that it might be more likely for evidence to be withheld when proof of guilt is uncertain. Why I chose to be a prosecutor? Uh Uh-huh. To do justice. 
the court system um, appealed to me. Trying cases to a jury appealed to me. Uh, being on the side of doing the right thing every day for the right reason. I can't think of a better way to use a law license. You know, prosecutors have this difficult dual role they play. It's their job to win convictions, and it's also their job to be ministers of justice. In other words, they have a kind of broader responsibility to fairness. Sometimes those roles are intention. And if you have an office where the message is one that really values winning above all else, um, you can kind of throw that balance out of whack. Mm. So one thing that some of the experts I talked to mentioned as a potential red flag is that in Shelby County for a long time there's been something called a hammer award where if you win a case or you get a big sentence you get this award with a picture of a hammer. A hammer award? That was something that was started a million years ago by an assistant who is now deceased Um, and he would take those on people's doors after after they got a verdict. Just a way to let the office know this was, you know, before emails and everything else to let the office know that a trial was over and that was the verdict. Um, Are there any other ways of recognizing merit that the office has? Like if you dismiss a case and that was the right thing to do, is there a way to recognize that? Of course there is. Quite frankly, we dismiss more cases around here than we actually get convictions on. Mm -hmm. Why we don't keep up with conviction rates and things like that, because that's not our job. Our job is to do justice. And sometimes that justice is going to trial and presenting the best case you can and putting it in the hands of the jury. And oftentimes that justice is dismissing charges. You know, one thing that was sort of surprising to me was when I looked at this office back in time, there have been a number of issues about failure to disclose evidence. I should also add that some of the allegations against this office and failing to disclose evidence involve Amy Weirich herself in a couple of other cases. There's this kind of mysterious disappeared envelope in an old case. And I assume that uh, that envelope contained evidence? Well, it's a weird story. So the new defense attorney and a new prosecutor went back these old files. And they both say they saw a manila envelope that had a yellow sticky on it that said something like, do not turn over to the defense with Amy Weirich's initials. And when they went back, they said that that envelope and that sticky note were gone. Now, Amy Weirich had to give testimony about this. She denied knowing anything about it in court. And the judge who um, heard this appeal found that there was no reason to grant the defendant a new trial. That order is now on appeal. But these accusations have been coming up in multiple cases in Shelby County. Prosecutors are not perfect. This office touches over 200,000 cases every year, and mistakes are going to be made. But there is a huge difference between a mistake and misconduct. You were talking earlier about Jennifer Jackson, you know, how the hammock statement didn't point to someone else believing, someone else killing Jennifer Jackson. So when you learned of the DNA results in that case after Nora Jackson was indicted, what did you think about that? Because those DNA results obviously didn't point to Nora Jackson as the killer. They didn't point to anything, as DNA often doesn't. 
sometimes DNA is very helpful in eliminating suspects. Sometimes DNA is very helpful in identifying suspects. But we had a mountain of circumstantial evidence that put the defendant in that home, killing her mother at the time, lying about it every chance she got afterward, uh, destroying and disposing of clothing that she had been wearing earlier in the evening. We had motive. We had we had everything you can have in a case except for direct DNA evidence. So when you got that DNA and it was not Nora, that didn't make you hesitate? No. A lot of district attorney's offices around the country and a whole bunch of states have passed laws in which they've just taken out this whole honor system part of whether you disclose evidence or not. Instead of prosecutors trying to make these difficult judgment calls about what's favorable to the defense and what's material, they just open up their files. They say to the defense lawyer, come on in, you look at everything, you know, you decide what's going to help your case. And so what that suggests to me is that this is one more way in which the quality of justice in the United States really depends on where you are. If you're accused of a crime, um, the state and even the town that you're in can really determine the quality of, um, of justice you receive. And this brings us back to Nora Jackson's prison cell when she found out she had won her appeal and that her conviction had been overturned. What happened next to her? So Nora Jackson had um, kind of a hard road. That was an exciting day. Um, She knew that she was going to get another chance. And there was a fight going on where her lawyers were trying to get Amy Weirich and her office removed from the case. Eventually, the judge did appoint a new prosecutor, and he offered Nora Jackson a deal. He said, if you plead to voluntary manslaughter, I'll give you a shorter 15-year sentence. She was told by her lawyers, um, who say that they checked with the Tennessee Department of Corrections, that if she pled to this lower sentence, she'd be able to get out that day, the day she signed the plea. Wow. She has a really agonizing choice to take. On the one hand, she has friends and supporters outside of prison who are saying, take the deal, just get out and start over again. And, you know, the idea of being able to have a child of her own was really important to her. And so watching her biological clock tick away while she stayed in prison, if she was retried and resentenced, that seemed like a really serious consequence to her. On the other hand... Pleading guilty meant that she would be marked forever as the person who had killed her mother. It meant that the police would never go and look for another suspect. The thing that I wanted the most was vindication, like, you know, and because that would open up the door for them to go look for somebody else. So what did she do, Emily? She decided to take the deal. And now that, that, that it's a closed book. Mm-hmm. Like, I'll have, like, there's nothing motivating them to look because they, I'm, on paper, I'm the killer. Right. Even right. though that's I maintain my innocence, that's what the cops look at. So, like, somebody's just getting away scot-free. And I helped make that happen. Since Nora signed this plea deal, she has been um, kind of overwhelmed by a sense of regret and anger with herself. You know, she was really trading vindication for her freedom, and in her own view, she didn't get either. So where is Nora now 
So Nora now lives in Nashville. She got out of prison a year ago. One of the things that's been plaguing her is she has some health problems. She's had a condition called endometriosis since she was a teenager, and that causes some trouble that can make it hard to have a baby. And so she's been battling with that. She had some surgery. Her doctors have been recommending a hysterectomy. And and if that happened, of course, she would not be able to have her own child. So that's been another source of intense regret. And, you know, the other thing is, as an ex-felon, it would be really hard for her to adopt a baby. So she's been wrestling with all that, again, a kind of sense of having lost her family and, and lost a part of her future, perhaps, that was really vital to her. I'm still, like, very much a prisoner, you know, and a lot of people... They don't, they don't get that, you know, like I'm still the girl that killed her mom, you know, and I'm still the girl that sold out, but now, you know, and I'm the girl that can say that, you know, I did this so I could have a baby and like years down the road, I would look at my child and be like, you were every bit worth it, but now I might not have that. You know, I traded all of these things to be able to wake up free, but I'm not even free. The Innocence Project has decided to represent Nora, and what they want to do is reopen the case to retest the evidence. And the hope from their point of view is that because of recent developments in DNA technology, they'll be able to get new information from the physical evidence at the scene of the crime of her mother's murder, and that perhaps that will lead to a DNA identification of the killer. Emily, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so glad that we're doing this. That's it for The Daily. I'm Michael Barbaro. See you tomorrow. When times became uncertain... Wampley pivoted their technology platform and committed to help small businesses and self-employed workers get approved for their PPP loan. In just a few months, Wampley has helped one million businesses across America to secure much-needed funding so they can continue to stay open and serve their communities. Wampley helps small businesses thrive. Visit wampley.com to learn more.